One day, Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village in Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. We are in our fourth and final week of this series, Through the Roof. You know this story really well by now. We have explored it every week. We've gone through the passage every week. We have explored it from the perspective of the Pharisees, from the perspective of the friends and the community. And, and you know what happens. Jesus is teaching in a house. He's seated teaching in a position of authority. The, the, teachers, uh, the Pharisees and teachers of the law are sitting here also in, in seats of authority and seats of honor. And people are crammed into their house. They're overflowing through the windows, through the doors, and the crowd has built up and built up because this is early on in Jesus' ministry. It's early on in his, uh, his ministry in Jerusalem, and people have heard that he's healing, and people are getting well. So the sick are coming. The sick are being brought. Anybody who needs a touch of healing is being brought to Jesus. And the crowds have built up and built up and built up. Meanwhile, there's a man and his four friends, and the man and his friends hear that Jesus is in town, and they decide to go to Jesus. And when they get there, what happens? They can't get through. So what do they do? They, they go up. What do, you know this. This is our fourth week on this. They go, they go up on the roof, and and they think, oh, we can't get to Jesus, so logical thing we're going to do, we're going to make a hole in the roof, and then they lower him down. The friends hold the ropes and shimmy him down, lowering him down, and he lands right in front of Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? He heals him. He heals him. The, what, so, so what is the purpose of this miracle? You would think the purpose of the miracle would be for the lame man to walk, for the paralyzed man to be able to walk. And that does happen. But Jesus says something very interesting in this passage. He says, I want you to know who I am. Jesus says, I am going to heal this man. I am going to do what I'm going to do so that you will know that I have authority to forgive sins. Jesus says in verse 23, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. See, everybody's really interested in the healing of Jesus. I would be too. Had I been there, I would have been pretty, pretty focused on that. 
And the Pharisees, this is early on in the gospel, early on in Jesus' public ministry, so at this point the Pharisees aren't completely antagonistic toward Jesus. They're not trying to kill him yet like they do later on in the gospel. In this early stage of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees are sitting there, they're learning from Jesus, they're, 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 they're not sure exactly what they think of him. They have some questions, as, as we see in the passage, but they are at least sitting in the presence of Jesus, and they're, they're, they're in dialogue with Jesus about some things. And they've come because they've heard about the healings too. So it says in the passage, they've come from far and wide to come and see Jesus, and, and they're, they're excited about these, these miracles. They're excited about this miracle man who's doing these amazing things. And as the passage goes on, the man comes down through the roof, he gets lowered in front of Jesus, and Jesus, what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't say first, he doesn't say, hey, paralyzed man, I heal you, get up and walk. The first thing Jesus says is, hey, paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And I kind of imagine that moment of, of people thinking, that's not what we're asking for here. I mean, the four friends didn't bring their paralyzed man, carry him on the mat, and come through the roof so Jesus could forgive his sins. They brought him to Jesus so Jesus could heal his body. But Jesus disrupts the moment and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Well, that throws everybody off. And the Pharisees, the, the, the Bible says they don't say it out loud. It says they think these things. The Pharisees start thinking, who is this man? Who does he think he is? Who, wh why does he think he can do this? Only God can forgive sins. Who does he think he is? And the Bible says they don't say it out loud. They just think it. But Jesus, because he's awesome, perceives their thoughts. He perceives their thoughts, and he says to them, why are you thinking these things? <laughs> Can you imagine how they felt in that moment, being called out when, when they didn't even say anything? It, see, see, the Pharisees had no problem with Jesus healing. But they had a big problem with Jesus claiming to be God. They were fine with Jesus being a great moral teacher. They were fine with Jesus being a miracle worker. They were not fine with Jesus being God. And we've already talked about how Jesus was in this place of authority of teaching, and the Pharisees were sitting in these seats of honor, really because of their authority. And in this moment, there is this clash of authorities, this clash of the powers in which they question the authority, they question the legitimacy of Jesus. And church, I would suggest to you today that there are a lot of people in this world who are fine with thinking of Jesus as a great moral teacher, but they're not fine with thinking of Jesus as God. We are fine with Jesus being a healer because healing is nice. Healing is helpful. And we're fine with a Jesus who is all loving as long as he behaves nicely according to how we think he should behave. But as soon as we start talking about sin and sinners and right and wrong and some of the crazy things that we don't focus on that Jesus says, as soon as we have that kind of conversation about God, a God who disagrees with our flawed human theology, when we disapprove of, God, of Jesus' morals, as soon as Jesus changes from being nice to being in charge, there's a clash of authority. There's this power struggle. 
And that's what's happening in this power struggle right now between Jesus and the Pharisees. There's this power struggle, and it's, it's a silent one at first, right? I love that. It's just a silent one, but Jesus calls it out. And he says, there's a power struggle here, and what I want you to know is I want you to know the authority that I have. I want you to know the authority that I have to forgive sins. We're in the same boat as the Pharisees, I think, church. A lot of times we are. We're all in for a healer. We're less excited about an authority figure. We're all in for a loving Jesus, but we're not in for the Jesus who is also just against us. We like him being just with other people, not with us. We prefer to have a, a manageable Jesus who, who behaves. The kind of Jesus that we can take our paralyzed friend to when they need help. A Jesus who we can text when we want him to use his miracle juice on something. But we, we want to have a controllable Jesus so we can add him to our lives as it's convenient without having to subtract the things in our lives that are at odds or in conflict with him. The problem is that Jesus won't tolerate that. The problem is that Jesus is a person of authority, and he wants authority in your life. The command in the Old Testament is, you shall have no other gods before me. Jesus will not coexist with other gods in your life for long. So back to the passage, we have these Pharisees, we have these teachers, they're sitting there, and we have the, the shower of dirt that starts to rain down from the roof. I just wish I could be there because it just had to be something. And I just imagine Jesus stopping teaching and silence filling the house and this patch of sunlight opening and coming down on the people. And everybody's looking up wondering what is going to happen. The man comes down on the mat. The man is in front of them. And I imagine, this isn't in the Bible, but I just imagine that at this point the Pharisees were like, oh, we're going we're gonna to see some action here. We've got front row seats. We're going to see something. And then Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven throws them off. And so with that phrase, Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Say that out loud. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is saying several things in just that one brief line. The first thing he says is that you're a sinner. You have sin. <laughs> the first is he's like, paralyzed man who's on this mat in front of me, I see you have a sin problem. You've got a sin problem. And he calls it out. He doesn't like gloss it over to be nice to the, to the handicapped guy. He, he, he calls it out. He's not afraid to call it out. But we're afraid to call this stuff out, Christians. We're, we're afraid because we're, we're, we're nice in that way. We don't, we don't like to call people out as sinners because it's not PC. It's a little uncomfortable. But Jesus isn't afraid to call this man out and say, you're a sinner. And it's because Jesus is the authority on righteousness and truth. Jesus gets to define what is sin and what is not. We don't get to define that. We do. We try. But it's, it's ultimately not our call. Jesus says, I see that you're a sinner. The, the second thing that Jesus is saying in this statement when he says, friend, your sins are forgiven, is he says, I can do what only God can do. I can do what only God can do. 
See, that's what the Pharisees were silently thinking among themselves. They were thinking, how is this man doing this? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knew what he was doing. When he says your, friend, your sins are forgiven, he absolutely knew the Pharisees were going to have a heyday with that one. And when he says, friend, your sins are forgiven, he is communicating to the Pharisees that he is God, that he can do the work of God, that the work of God is his to do. He says, I can do what only God can do. It is his claim to deity. He knows exactly what he's doing here. The third thing that he's communicating when he says, friend, your sins are forgiven, is he's communicating, I got this. I got this. I can take care of this. Don't worry, friends. This is not hard for me. And he, he says to the Pharisees, so what is, what is easier for me to say your sins are forgiven or for, you to say, for me to say take up your mat and walk? We, we hear that church and we're like, oh, what do you think is harder? Let me just ask you this. What, what's harder? What's harder, to forgive sins or to, to heal someone who's lame? They're both hard. They're both hard, right? But the sin is the bigger one. But, but they're both hard. They're both equally impossible for most of us to do. And Jesus says, neither of those are hard for me. Neither of those are hard for me. I've got this. Because I have authority. I have authority over the physical realm. I have authority over the spiritual realm. I am God, and it is not too hard for me. Pharisees are asking, who does he think he is? Who is this man? Who is this man? Jesus has been tripping people up for 2,000 years. He has been tripping people up, messing with people's ideas about stuff for 2,000 years. The Bible describes Jesus as a stumbling stone. It describes that often he is an offense to people because he doesn't function the way that we think God often should. And we're so committed to controlling our conception of God that there is no space for us to have Jesus operate as Jesus operates. So the scripture describes him as a stone that often causes people to stumble. See, the Pharisees didn't have a problem with healing. The Pharisees had a problem with authority. So he says in Luke chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Let me just pause here and say, church, some of you are trusting Jesus to forgive your sin, but you're not trusting him for the easier thing of getting up and walking. You're not trusting him for the miracle that you need in your life. You, you trust him that he's going to get into heaven someday, but you haven't trusted him with today. Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Verse 24, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. <laughs> Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. Colossians 2.9 says, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in him. In Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in him. Lives in bodily form. I said that wrong. Let me say the verse right again. One more time. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. 
I am the son of man. If you want a fun book study, look up son of man in your Bibles and read all the descriptions about the son of man and who the son of man is and what he does. It's pretty great. Jesus says, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. Healing and forgiving are both difficult, but neither is too hard for me. Jesus wants us to know his authority. He wants us to know that he is supreme. He wants us to know that he has ruling power. He wants us to know that he came to seek and save the lost. He wants us to know he came to reveal our sin, to call it out, so that we can be called to repentance and we can be called to resurrection and new life. He wants us to know he has authority to heal us. He wants us to know he has authority to save our lives. He wants us to know he has the authority to raise us from the dead, to resurrect us into new life. He wants us to know he has the authority to judge us, and that one day all of us, believers or non-believers, will stand before Jesus, the great judge, who will judge the living and the dead. He will judge the right and the wrong. He will judge how we lived our lives, what we did and didn't do. The Bible tells us this. Jesus is the perfect blend of mercy and justice. He is so perfect at it, we can't even conceive of how that will be. Jesus has both power and authority. If you're taking notes, write this down. Power means you have the ability to do something. Authority means you have the right to do something. Jesus has the power, he has the ability to do something, and he has the authority, he has the right to do it. Jesus can deal with sin in his power and in his authority. So in this moment of Jesus and the Pharisees, in this clashing of authority powers right here, there is a decision that needs to be made. Will they accept Jesus as an authority figure, or will they not? Will they reject him and say he does not have that kind of authority? I think that today, a lot of people define truth. We define authority as truth as defined within ourselves. If we feel like something is true, then we say it's true. If it seems logical to us, we say it's true. If it seems illogical to us, we say it's not true. If we have an internal sense that something should be right, then we say that that's true. And, and it is very common for people today to say truth is defined by my understanding of it, by my perceptive, uh, perception of it. The thing is that for the Christians, we don't get to, truth is truth for everybody. Truth is truth. And truth gets defined by God. And for Christians, our source of truth is always Jesus and his word. The scripture is the written word of God, and authority should always be located in the scripture and in the person of Jesus. So, when you're going along reading something in your Bible that you're like, I do not understand what that was. I actually had that this week. I was reading in, in Matthew, and there were some parables that, that were, I'm like, I, I prayed, like, Lord, I don't, I don't get this at all. And uh, kind of sat with the Lord on it for a little bit, and I eventually moved on. But, but sometimes we come to something in the scripture, and, and it messes us up, and we don't like it. We don't like what it says, and we think, I don't, I don't think that should be in there. I had someone tell me recently, um, there's this, this scripture verse that you use that I don't, I don't agree with it. Well, guess what? It doesn't matter if we agree with it or not, because it is what it is. If Jesus says it, it is what it is. And so we don't then say, well, the Bible isn't true, or the Bible isn't reliable. The Christian says, I must have something to learn. I must need a greater understanding. I must have more that I need to understand. I'm on a journey. I can't know it all, but God does. See, the, the difference is that the person of faith puts their faith in 
in, in the truth of Jesus and says, I don't have to have it all. Whereas others would say, if, if it doesn't make sense to me or if, it's, if I don't own it, then that's, that's what my truth is. If we come to something in the Bible and you read the words of Jesus and you think, huh, Jesus doesn't sound very Christian here. The problem is, is your understanding of Jesus and your view of Jesus needs to change. Not that Jesus is wrong. We grapple with this authority question every day. Every day, we are faced with the possibility of either us being in authority over our lives or Jesus having authority in our lives. Every day, we make decisions about who's going to lead, who's going to make the decisions, who's going to direct my steps, who is going to tell me what is important in life, who's going to tell me how I'm going to live. And the question is Jesus' authority versus my own. C.S. Lewis is a famous author and apologist. He wrote on Christian apologetics in the mid-1900s, and he has a very helpful way, I think, of teaching about who Jesus is. Jesus himself claimed to be God. Jesus himself said, I am God. So if we could pull up that first picture, you're going to see my beautiful artwork here. Uh, Jesus is God. Jesus claimed to be God, so we have to deal with the fact that Jesus says he's God. And there are two logical options of how to sort through this. Either it, Jesus is God is true, or the statement Jesus is God is false. If it is true, if Jesus is, tr if, if Jesus is God and that is true, that means that Jesus is Lord. That means he has authority. That means he is in charge. That means he is the boss. That means he is overall, he reigns supreme. And, and this is what Christianity is built on. We, we, are, we are built on this belief that Jesus is God and that that is a true statement, so he is Lord. If, however, the statement Jesus is God is a false statement, then there are two options to that. Either Jesus knew that he was lying to us, he knew it was a false statement, or he didn't know that he was lying to us and he was deceived. So if Jesus knew that he was lying to you, then that makes him a liar. And he's then uh, conducted one of the biggest heists in history because millions and millions of people have put their faith in him and he's duped a lot of people. Or if he says he's God and that wasn't true and he didn't know it, then he's just disconnected from reality. And C.S. Lewis' word is lunatic. And it makes nice alliteration, Lord, liar, lunatic. Now, I have had conversations with, with people here in our community who have been a little bit disconnected from reality, who have been convinced that they were Jesus or that they were the Son of God. I've had multiple conversations over the years. It happens. And that's one of the beauties of our community is then you, we, uh, you know, pastorally care for the person in their situation, but also help correct that belief as we are able to do so. But, um, but Jesus, if we, if we could pull that back up one more time, keep that up on the screen another minute longer. Jesus is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. These are logically the only three options. There is a fourth option, though, that people like, and that's to talk about Jesus as a good moral teacher. How many of you have heard say, people say, I don't believe he's God, but he's a good moral teacher? Logically, that is not possible, because if Jesus is a liar, then he can't be moral, and if Jesus is a lunatic, he's not going to make a very good teacher. So it is not logical 
to even say that Jesus is a good moral teacher because Jesus makes crazy claims about himself, like he came from heaven and he's going back up to the Father. He's returning to the Father and he's coming to, for, to deal with our sins. Jesus says all these things that don't make any sense if he's just a good moral teacher. Jesus is God, and if that is true, if Jesus is who he says he is, he has a right to your belief in him. If Jesus is who he says he is, he has a right to have authority in your life. And if you believe that Jesus is Lord, if you believe that he is the answer to all of life's problems, if you believe that he is our hope, if you believe that he is the only way, that he is the truth, that he is the life, then we are going to hold the rope to get our friends down to Jesus. We are going to hold the rope and bring our friends to Jesus as much as we can. We are going to put ourselves at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I, I humble myself before you and I acknowledge your authority in my life and in this world. Jesus did miracles to help us believe. Jesus could have only come teaching about concepts and then like died on the cross and done it that way, but not done all the, the miracles of healing, but he did do miracles of healing. And he did these miracles and he did these signs as signs of the kingdom of God breaking into the world. Now, Jesus did not heal every single sick person, every single diseased person, every single hurting person in his, when he was on earth. He, he didn't do that. He healed some and he didn't heal others. And he did this so that we would have a taste of what the kingdom of God would be like. That someday when his kingdom returns to this earth and his kingdom breaks through, this is, this is what it's going to be like. It's just a flavor of what the kingdom of God will be. And so Jesus does these miracles. He does these signs for all these, all these reasons. And uh, he fulfills prophecy. He has compassion on people. He does it as, as signs of the authority that he has and of a sign that he is God come to earth. Even that, though, didn't make everybody believe in him. Even though the miracles were amazing, it didn't automatically mean that everybody believed in Jesus. In fact, after Jesus raised from the dead and appeared to people after his resurrection, the scripture tells us that some still doubted. I don't know what they were doubting. Maybe they thought that was a lookalike. Maybe they thought Jesus didn't die. I don't know. But it said some still doubted. And even after that, not everyone believes. And you need to know that there is choice involved. That you have a free will to respond to God or not to respond to God, to acknowledge his authority or to reject his authority. And this is true of the Pharisees and of the teachers. And as Luke goes on in the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, you see the Pharisees hardening their hearts they had this opportunity to respond to the authority of Jesus, and they don't. At least not most of them. Very, very few did, but most of them don't. And over the next two chapters, you see them growing harder and harder in their hearts toward Jesus till they get to the point of planning to kill him. There are obstacles. There are obstacles of, of getting to Jesus, things that would hinder us from experiencing his authority. And there are obstacles for us. Who do we say he is? Do we really believe that Jesus says he is 
says who he is? Do we really believe Jesus has authority on earth? Last week we talked about holding the rope for our friends, about being the kind of friend who holds on to that rope and lowers those friends down to be in the presence of Jesus because we've said if Jesus is really who he says he is, there is no greater gift, no greater way we can love our friends than to bring them into the presence of Jesus. And you are encouraged to take your ropes, to take a piece of rope as a reminder of who it is that Jesus wants you to, to reach out to. And uh, I just want to encourage you, if you have not invited anybody yet for Fall Fest to, to take that, take that, prayerfully consider who Jesus wants you to hold the rope for. Because if Jesus is that good, if he's that good, your loved ones need him too. And so I have just a couple more questions for you about the authority of Jesus. My question for you is, if you will give Jesus rightful authority in your own life. There's a picture up on the screen here of life before Christ. If you've been around City Life for a while, you might recognize this because we bring this up from time to time. But the circle, the big blue circle, represents your life. And the chair in that circle represents the throne of your life. Who is on the throne of your life? Who is in charge? Who is, who is the person who rules your life? And in this image, in, the, in your life before Christ, self is on the throne, that's the S, and Jesus, the cross, is outside of your life. When Jesus is not in our lives yet, we, we run our own lives. We have the authority. We, we, we use our authority to run our own lives. And the different sized dots all represent different interests and different things in our lives, our work, our families, our, our hobbies, our interests, our passions, and how they're often disordered and not in a pr the priority order that Jesus would have. This is the self-directed life, the life of self-authority. But when Jesus enters our lives, when it's a Christ-directed life, Jesus comes on the throne, self appropriately kneels at the bottom of the throne in surrender to Jesus and says, Jesus, you lead. I, I'm just here to live out the life that you want me to have. And the whole, all the areas of our lives then as we are discipled and as we mature in Christ, become ordered and are in their proper place. We begin to ex exemplify the fruit of the Spirit, and the Spirit breaks out among us. This is what it looks like to have Christ on, in authority of our lives. But there's one more picture. This is for a person who's a Christian, but somehow they have nudged Jesus off of that throne, and they've climbed back up. Sometimes we forget, don't we? Sometimes we forget that we're, we're not God. And we've, we've nudged Jesus off. We thought Jesus hasn't worked fast enough. Jesus hasn't been clear enough with me. I haven't liked how he's done some stuff. I'm going to do a better job than him. And we nudge him off the throne and put ourselves up there. That's what it looks like to be a worldly Christian. Jesus in your life, but not on the throne. And as we wrap up this study today, I want to ask you to examine the role of Jesus' authority. This was the purpose of the miracle, church. The purpose of the miracle, it was great that it, it resulted in a man who couldn't walk walking. But Jesus says, I've come, I came to do this miracle so you know the authority that I have to forgive sins. The authority that I have for your life. And I want you to examine today the role of Jesus' authority in your life. 
I invite you to bow your heads and ask the Lord, Lord, where do you want authority in my life that you don't have? Lord, what am I holding on to right now that you, that you want me to surrender? Lord, what, what are my hands clamped tightly around and you're inviting me to unclench my fists? Lord Jesus, what do you want to have authority over that, that I haven't given up? Lord Jesus, I'm, I'm sorry for climbing back on that throne. I'm sorry for when my will battles against your will and there's this clashing of authority wills. Jesus, you, I want you to win every time. Jesus, I want you to win every time. And I humble myself before you. I confess that I keep taking it back. I, I give it up again, God. And I humble myself. You're right. I'm not. You lead the way. I will follow. You're leading me into a place of tension, and I will receive that. You're leading me into a place where I don't have all the answers that I want, and I relinquish my control of needing to have that. Jesus, I let you be an authority once again, humbling myself before you. Be my Lord. You are my leader. You are my savior. You are the truth. Your way is right. All your paths are good. And so, Jesus, we put ourselves in your hands and surrender afresh our own wills and once again, just say, here we are, surrendered to you, open to you, relinquishing ourselves to you. We pray these things for the sake of your kingdom, for the benefit of your kingdom, for the glory of your kingdom, and the spread of your kingdom. In your name we pray, amen. I couldn't help as we enter into communion today to